Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Welcome to the latest of the Read All About It Extra podcast, this time coming to you by the wonders of Zoom, uh, recording at time. my house and Hugh McDonald is in his, and today we are talking about sports books, and Hugh, I thought there was no one better to talk about some of your favourite sports books than a, a man described as the doyen of Scottish sports writing. I know you didn't describe yourself as that, but uh, you mm. certainly uh, sport, as people who would have listened to you in the podcast before, we know you, it's a, a major passion in your life and also sports writing as well. Yeah, absolutely. I'm reading too and and, and uh, as we get into this conversation, it'll be really interesting to, you know, how um, sports writing and interest in sports kind of triangulated with reading of great sports books as well, which I think is a very interesting subject. Yeah, so because it's, it's interesting again when and the format's the same as it's been for other ones that I've done with Chris Dolan is we just each choose five of our favourite sports books and then we'll just have a wee chat of each of them and I think just maybe the nature of sports writing as well that most, just about all the books chosen are all actually non-fiction books. It's interesting because I've only chosen one fiction book. Possibly, I was thinking about it in my walk last night, why I'd done that and uh, because there's some great sports fiction out there uh, most interestingly, I think because of the way American authors, um, more than maybe British authors, took sport as a really integral part of their life. So, for example, Philip Roth wrote uh, the, the Great American Novel, kind of ironically titled Great American Novel, and that was putatively about a travelling baseball team. Bernard Malamud's The Natural, uh, about the, the baseball player. The Rabbit series, for example, from uh, John Updike, the hero in that, Rabbit Armstrong, Angstrom, he's an ex-basketball player. So there's a lot of really good sports fiction. But I was thinking last night why I had really almost totally restricted myself to non-fiction. And that's because I, I don't think sport really needs fiction because it encapsulates a lot of the, the themes and tropes of, of fiction in the sort of like the arc of what it covers. And there were certain ones, do you know, Paul, she likes it like that. It's like your best album, isn't it? You know, you, I listed five there. I could list another 10, 15, 20. It's like, listen, your, your best album. You go, wait a minute, I haven't listed Stevie Wonder Tapestry. Or I've, I've got Ahman from the Stones. Or what about, you know, I haven't gotten, you know, from the Temptations or so. It's such a thing, but I'm, I'm I'm quite happy with this list as we go through because I think it speaks to wider themes. Every book will speak to a wider theme. Absolutely. Well, we'll, we'll start with the, the first of the 10 books that, that we've chosen between us, and that's your first choice. And it's a, a book called Million Dollar Baby by FX O'Toole. But it's a book of short stories, and is probably best known of the short story that's uh, eponymous, you know, uh, made into a film with Clint Eastwood. I think it's not the strongest story by far in the book. But it FX, Francis Xavier O'Toole is the, the writing name for for a guy that's worked in the boxing business, most you know, most pertinently as a cuts man. So he's been right in the, the centre of it. 
it's a great book about the realities and the brutalities of life, but it's also kind of underpinned all the way by great humanity, you know. Um, I think boxing is such a powerful thing to write about, and I just think that he just sees the good and that boxing can, can bring out, but he's not blind at all to the the dreadfulness that it can, that it can inflict. It's interesting, but again, when I was just doing some research in the book, and I think it was originally called Rope Burns Story from the yep. Corner, and I've always been fascinated, I'm sure you and I have spoken about this before, about certain sports, I think, lend themselves to good writing. And, and mm-hmm. I think certainly boxing one-on-one in that ring, the combat, but it's more about, it's more than just those three minutes of that bout, it's everything that surrounds it. And I think it lends itself to good fiction and non-fiction writing. Yeah. I agree totally. I mean, because other you know other contenders for for um, you know if you're talking about fiction, like Fat City, would have been a, a contender for me as well. A great book about boxing corruption and the way it can corrupt individually and corporately. But I think I think boxing you could add could have if somebody if you said to me list twenty great boxing books, I could do that off my top of my head, Paul. I'm actually reading one at the moment by Donald McCree. Uh, Sunshine and Shadow, which is a, a, a history of boxing through the Troubles in Northern Ireland, which is fantastic. And he also wrote Dark Trade, which is one of the great sports books as well. But I think it's that cliche about being primal. I mean, boxing is such a primal thing that we can all identify with it. And we can all, even though we've not done it, we can all look at it and say, because it's about fear, it's about resilience. It's about endurance. It's about overcoming odds. It's about it's about pain. It's about being hot. And sometimes it's about being hot and coming back. And I think these themes, even though I've never stepped inside a boxing ring and, and I've no plans to do so at 65, although my son has and does, it's always fascinated me. Interesting, I think, although we, neither of us have chosen it, and, and I didn't choose this book because I, I spoke about it in a previous podcast, but The Fight by Norman Mailer, for me, is is good. A, a, a book, never mind a, a sports book or a boxing book, is, is you're ever li- likely to mm. read. If you look at the Ali story, if you look at, I mean, again, I could list you 20 books about, um, that may be an exaggeration, but I could, off the top of my head, just sitting there, I could, I, I could, I could mention 10 books Surrounding Ali, Mark Cram's Ghost of Manila, David Remnick's King of the World, Thomas Hauser's Life of Ali, The Fight by Mailer, the works of uh, Michael Vanni, which we'll get on to. And what happens with Ali is that, that, that you have a great story there. And see if you have a great story, it's going to create great art. It really is. And, and, and I've, got no, I've got no hesitancy with calling it art. I mean, if you look at that one fight in Ali's career, it created an Oscar-winning documentary in When We Were Kings, and it created the fight, and it also created one of Michael Vanny's greatest ever pieces, uh, which we'll go on to, to later. Um, so that one fight, that half an hour in Zaire, is responsible for an Oscar, a Pulitzer, and that's just off the top there, because there was other stuff as well, because it's such a great story. You know, you mentioned, obviously, FX O'Toole, Million Dollar Baby. A lot of people would recognise the title from the film. Clint Eastwood directed it. It won the Best Picture Oscar. Mm-hmm. Hilary yeah. Swank won an Oscar for the Best Actress. And, and again, I don't think it's a coincidence that boxing 
produces great films. Oh, Obviously, yeah. Raging Bull is, is a perfect example of it because there's again something about the, the you know as you say the primal beauty of two people getting into a ring and you know mm-hmm. trying to not not literally try to kill each other but trying to be the better person after those mm-hmm. three rounds or however many rounds it is. Yep, I mean there's the great cliche about boxing is as a sport you know you play you play football you play rugby you play basketball but you don't play boxing. People have have to have a wide-eyed and clear-eyed, sorry, look at what it's about. But boxing, I think, you know, in all other martial sports, they're the only sports where the whole reason to enter is to afflict pain and, and unconsciousness upon your opponent. Other sports may do so as a side issue or consequence of some actions, but the whole purpose of boxing is, is to hurt uh, your opponent uh, and debilitate him or her. So that's a very dark thing to investigate. And the best sport, uh, boxing writers, of, of which there are many, uh, from Liebling uh, right through Plimpton and Schulberg and Donald McCray, uh, right to Michael Vanney uh, and, and others. They know this. They, they don't shy away from this. Michael Vanney always talked to me about boxing and he said um, he, you know, you know, he could understand why people wanted a band. He would never argue for it existing. But while it existed, he was duty-bound to report it. We'll, we'll go in. We'll obviously be talking about uh, Hugh Michael Vanney later mm-hmm. in, in this podcast. But we're going to go into my first book choice. And it is my only fiction choice out of the five books I've chosen. And it's The Thistle and the Grail by Robin Jenkins, which for me, I, I mean, I'm a, a massive fan of Robin Jenkins. I absolutely love uh, his mm-hmm. books. And having read, I think Cone Gatherers was probably the first of his books that I read. But then when I read The Thistle and the Grail, I'm always very aware that I, I always felt and still feel there's probably a, a lack of really good football fiction for a whole mm-hmm. variety of reasons. I think it's the same as we're talking about boxing you know, filmmakers have struggled because they've tried to focus on the action and it's not about yeah. the action. And Robin Jenkins does that perfectly because it's about the Thistle as the, the junior football team, the Grail is the Holy Grail is the mm. Scottish Junior Cup. And just this, I was just going to read the very first paragraph because it, it goes to the heart of, of why this book is absolutely brilliant. So this is the, the first paragraph in the Thistle and the Grail. Thousand martyrs were being persecuted. Their howls of anguish mingled in one enormous snarl of lamentation that fluttered even the hardened sparrows and roofs around and made the women shoppers in the adjacent main street pause a smiling moment in their gossip. From Saggart Thistle Junior Football Club was again being defeated at home for the ninth time in succession and its devotees were on the rack. It's all about the teams there that's central to the town and, and that quest, but it's about the characters who are involved in the team, who are running the club. And it's a brilliant microcosm of, and it was written back in the 50s, but it still is, I think, mm. relevant now and, and how football becomes people's religion, how important it is to people, particularly mm. in Scotland. And I don't think MD's done it any better than, than Robin Jenkins. I agree, absolutely. And, and I agree that the central premise of the, the intro uh, is about how uh, football supporting is about suffering. And obviously in a sort of, not sectarian, but properly religious way, and that it's part of uh, enduring and, and suffering and finding some some hope uh, amidst the despair. I always was amazed with this. It was once I was in, in, in Boston, and I went to see the Boston Celtics, and uh, after them, the, the game, they played the Detroit Pistons, and after the game, all the, the area around that, TD Arena is packed with sports bars and I did a big crawl around the sports bars with a couple of journalists and what I was amazed with was that everybody in the sports bar afterwards 
were on a high as if they'd been to a musical or they'd seen a really good bit of entertainment. And I was trying to tell people that how different this would be from people coming back from a Scottish football game. You know, a normal game, not a cup final or a league decider or a European game, where people would walk into the pub and somebody would say to them, where were you today? I was at that bloody fat bar. It'd be a downbeat tone of it, as if it was a matter of ritual that they had to go through. It was something like they had to go through, rather than something they had to enjoy. And I think Jenkins picks that up. But the beauty of that, of course, is if you do suffer through football, which we have all done, and if you do endure through football, and remember, for example, people forget that as a, as now in modern times, as a Celtic supporter, for example, where it's a time of, 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 of absolutely almost incontinent you know, abundance, right? There was literally decades where you did suffer. And that's what makes football great. I mean, you have to have, really, the suffering before you can really luxuriate in the glory. And Jenkins, in that book, there's so many good things in that book, Paul, uh, but that is one of the strongest elements for me. Do you know what struck me when when I was looking at my copy ahead of this, and Harry Reid has written an introduction to it, he makes the point and and then refers it to Jock Steen's famous quote about football without the fans is nothing. And it really, as I was reading it, it really struck me because you and I are obviously, we're doing this podcast in the middle of this lockdown, the football's Mm -hmm. postponed, and even when it does come back in various countries and various forms, it's going to probably be a while before fans are going to be allowed back into the stadiums, which is, is a strange thing for football. And it's something that you just took for granted of being able to mm. go to a game. It's, you know, something that you did when you were younger with your father, you do with your sons mm. your, or your daughters as you're older. And, and suddenly that's that might, that whole dynamic and that whole relationship with the sport is going to change. Yeah, that's, to me, that's the most significant thing of it. It's what separates, you know, I mean, we obviously know the skill of the players is in another league but really what separates football from you know professional football from the rest of us and it's why we love professional football that we've been we've all been brought up in sort of petri dish of playing football and and, and you know and sometimes playing at big grounds but not you know not making maybe playing cup finals for amateur teams or, or, or school teams and things like that and then this kind of going to this huge arena and that kind of that even religious thing again, the cathedrals of football um, and going in. And I really love that, Paul, as you know. Any time I'm abroad, I'll go to a football game, you know. I go to games all over the world. And I love it, and I love the way the culture is slightly different and, and how it sometimes reflects uh, the people in it. But underpinning it all is that oneness of being a fan, that oneness of, of identifying with your football team. And I think the best football teams are ones which have a really, really strong culture, where it's maybe, say, Boca, with a working-class culture against River Plate's more bourgeoisie. I, I love, I went to San Mames to watch Bilbao, and I love there was a real strong Basque feeling, not just in the language there, but in Basque sensibility. But Basques, there's a, a real politeness amongst Basques, and, and, and there was a real... Even though that stadium was going mental at times, they were quite polite about going mental. You know what I mean? And then we know that our club has got, um, you know, has got a culture that uh, Celtic that has ensnared us all over the years and for generations. Um, and we could do a whole program on that and football culture. But yeah, I think Jenkins captures that beautifully. And one just one final thing on it. I when I did finally get around to reading the Cone Gatherers, and it just always bugged me the fact that we hadn't been taught it at school. It's, uh, just, it's, a, it's a 
classic of world literature or the main mm. Scottish literature. And I always feel as well, particularly for young men, in order to, I was lucky because I, I grew up in a house full of books. I was encouraged to read and I enjoyed it. But I think to get, a, to have been given a book like The Thistle and the Grail as a teenager mm. to read, because one of the previous podcast guests, a guy called Stephen Keady, mm. he really, it was Fever Pitch, Dick Cornby's book that really turned mm. him onto reading. It was the first time he read a book where he, you know, it was about a subject interesting him, it was football. He was a Manchester United fan, or he is, although it was about Arsenal, but it's that kind of, there was universal themes in it. And it was after that he kind of realised that people could write books about subjects that you were interested in and it opened up a whole new world to him. And I, I just, that's why I, I always feel that, that there is a place for football fiction and it could really, if it's done properly, could can still engage readers who are interested in, in football. But well, not absolutely, I mean... Other ones that just slipped off my list, The Damned United, David Peace, yeah. and Red is Dead, the Shankly book, which received mixed reviews because of its style, but I loved, I absolutely loved, and I loved David Peace's work. And also and, uh, Martin Gregg and Charles McGarry's Road to Lisbon. I think that's his ab- Absolute cracker, a wee cracker. They grasped very, very on and early on in that book that like, everything, all books about football aren't about football. move on to your, your next choice and I'm going to partly because of something you just mentioned just when we we're talking about uh, you know an experience of going and watching sport in America so the, the next book I was going to get you to talk about is Summer of 49 by mm. David Halberstam. This is this is quite a good book for me to, to expound on a couple of things that interest me. First of all it's Halberstam right and if no if you haven't read Halberstam it would be my strongest recommendation to read them on anything. And Halberstam's reputation was really made as a, a really serious historian. He um, he wrote a really seminal work called The Best and the Brightest, which was a, a kind of forensic examination of the intellectual driving force behind the Kennedy administration and how great brains managed to lead the American presidency in America itself into its probably its greatest downfall of the 20th century, the Vietnam War. So the guy's got a real immense intellectual abilities and ability to corral good subjects. But he's also written extensively on sport, and I could have chosen any of his sporting books, but I chose this one to illustrate a point. This one is about the 1949 enemies between the New York Yankees and the Boston Red Sox, of which I care not a whit. I never have cared what a whit. But one thing is that reading has, has taught me is that you don't have to care about what the putative subject is, is to read a book. And I love this book because it's full of the joy of a, a young person suddenly being exposed to great sport finding out what great sport means to them, where it touches them, you know, and the drama they're in. I, I just identified with it totally. Just, just, it's just a spellbounding work. Well, do you know what really interested me about it? And I, I, I haven't read David Halberstam. I'm going to read this book first. About three years ago, I was in America on holiday and we went to a baseball game and it was the Oakland Athletics versus the Cleveland Indians and it was in Oakland. Mm-hmm. And it was a beautiful sunny day and it was all, you know, beer and hot dogs and, uh. you know, the people when you were in the stadium, they welcomed you, you heard your accent and it was like, realised that you were a visitor and it was really, it was a fantastic mm-hmm. experience. But what I found really strange was, you know, fans were just mingling everywhere and there was quite a lot of Cleveland Indian fans. Oakland Athletics were hopeless. They were getting absolutely 
battered. But there wasn't one person, one single athletics fan that was standing up shouting at the, the batter if he'd, if he'd missed a pitch or uh, if, uh, if they hadn't managed to get someone out. And I, I thought, come back to what you were saying about how in, in Scottish culture, even if you watch the game, there's a kind of negativity. But our way of watching our team and supporting our team can always, always seem to the outsider to be really aggressive and almost, oh. you're almost having a go at your own team. But it's, I don't know what it is. It's just that passion you have. I've got two stories about that. I'll tell them briefly. The first one was a few years ago. I was working in Boston and I got a ticket for the New York Yankees at the Red Sox, which somebody told me before going to the game, watch yourself tonight. He said, this is like the old firm of, uh, you know, American baseball. Just take it easy. Watch what you're about going up to the game. So I walked up to the tail of the game. It was like a crash. <laughs> there was actually Yankees fans sitting amongst the Red Sox fans and there was kind of like joshing, but never got worse than, than good natured. Another thing was, as you know, my son and I are supporters of Borussia Dortmund and we went to the German Cup final a few years ago. We're high in the stands of Dortmund playing Wolfsburg and Gundigan, the Dortmund uh, midfielder now in Man City, pulled out a tackle. You know, just literally jump at a tackle in the 10 minutes. And my son was on his feet going, Gundigan, yeah, you're blah, blah, blah. And I'm not kidding, the fans around about him were appalled. At half time, they weren't like aggressive to him. But half time, they were saying, well, wait, why are you shouting at our own players? And Ali's going, they actually crapped a tackle there, you know. And the guy said, yeah, 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 but he thought he was going to get injured and all that. And Ali's going, what do you not understand about this, you know? So, yeah, that whole dynamic in America is completely different. Uh, it, was, it was quite a, a strange, it was just a strange cultural thing and I'd always thought, again from an outside, the, the Yankees and the, the Red Sox did have that rivalry. It's a bit like I went to a, a Merseyside derby and it was a great experience but again it was just, it was so mild and it was so friendly and I was thinking the idea that MD would ever compare that to a Celtic Rangers game was just mm. laughable. Yeah. And I think if you talk to anybody at all from England who comes up and sees the Celtic Rangers game, uh, I mean, I mean, I remember Paul Hayward, who's now with the Telegraph, came up uh, for one. And it was just before the match started when the, the place just erupts, you know, all that pent-up expectation. He just turned around to me and he went, oh my God, you know, uh, <laughs> just not quite grasping it, you know. We're on to my second book choice, and this is a book by Joe McGuinness, and it's The Miracle of Castle de Sangro. It's basically a story of him spending a season with this tiny football team in this tiny village in the heart of southern Italy. And it is a miracle that somehow they manage to reach Serie B, and he spends a season with them and, and is completely integrated within the club, within you know the culture of the club, to the point where he's having dinner every night with the players, he's travelling to the games with the team. And it's that story of that, the fairy tale, but what's good about it is there is a fairy tale element but there's also a real there's a realism about it there's tragedy within it there's a disillusionment and it's interesting again I've, you've spoken about this before when I've spoke to you on the podcast and then out with about how and you touched on it at the start of this about how the, the best writers in America are or sports writers or, or write about sport and, and it was interesting I didn't I hadn't realise that Joe McGuinness the book that kind of made his name was a book called The Selling of the President and apparently he had been on a train and came up with this idea and I think I can't remember who the, the Democrat 
presidential candidate was in 68, but he had approached, I think, them, that their campaign, and they were interested. And then he went to Nixon's campaign, and they said, right, okay. And he basically told the story of that 1968 presidential campaign that Richard Nixon won. So he's obviously a, a writer of, of substance. And the book itself, it's so brilliant. You, you, you're there with him. You become part of it. And the, the kind of twists and turns and the highs and, and the real lows for him. I remember at the time when I first read it, you really experienced it with him. Yeah, and that the and that the ending as well, the sort of bleakness of the ending with the fairy tale is kind of um, sullied without spoiling it for for people who will read it. And that ability where McGuinness just jumps into an alien sport because there's lots of little paragraphs in it which are kind of very kind of clumsy because I can't remember the exact ones, but there's paragraphs in it where he says, "Yes, he took a kick from the twelve yard spot." and all that, and you know, instead of saying a penalty kick and things like that, he's not quite conversant with the, the whole uh, language of it. But again, the most I think that's the most significant part of McGuinness choosing an Italian football team to do a, a book about, because his other famous book, McGuinness, McGuinness, which really was a notorious book, was a book about um, a murderer. It could do a whole podcast on that, Paul, and the fallout of that book. Did he portray a guy's confidence? You know, there was real moral and ethical doubts about that book, but it was a deep book as well. And it is part of that American tradition that we've talked about is the best writers go and write about sport. They don't see sport as the toy department as we did, you know, like uh, it was referred to early in my journalistic career. That is really um, central to McGuinness. McGuinness says, no, this is a subject. And it's a subject worthy of me investigating. I think that's the most powerful aspect of the book, actually. It was interesting that uh, Backpage Press do the uh, Between the Lines podcast. Uh, for anybody who's interested in sport and sports books, you really have to subscribe to that and listen to it because they, they go behind the stories of, of books or, or features or, or articles. They do a brilliant one with, with you, talk, you know, the... And you, you know that piece after Andy Murray won Wimbledon for the first time, which again is just wonderful listening. But they do a brilliant podcast on this book and they speak to Joe McGuinness's widow. It's fascinating. And she said, I think at the time, he'd actually get this massive advance to go and cover the O.J. Simpson trial. And yeah. he'd get completely scunnered by it. And I think he walked away from it. Because I think at some point, I think he realised that this isn't, this isn't going the way justice and truth and reality is going to go. And he didn't want a part of it. And ended up, he ended up pitching this idea and the publishers weren't really that interested. But it was something that he pursued and, you know, became this incredible success because, as you mentioned earlier on, you don't necessarily have to be interested in sport or the team or anything. It's mm. the quality of the writing that really hooks you. And it really, it, it segues into one of my choices, Dave Moranis' book, When Pride Still Mattered, which is a, a biography of Vince Lombardi, probably... The first great uh, professional football coach of Green Bay Packers, of whom the, the, the Super Bowl trophy is named after. And we'll talk about that. But Moranis wrote that book after he'd wrote, written what I would regard as the definitive biography of Bill Clinton. It would be like Charles Moore writing a definitive biography of Thatcher, and then going on and writing a, a biography of Arsene Wenger. You know, and you just just can't see that happening. But that was a, like a seamless transition for him. And and his, his subsequent books have been about American political culture, particularly the culture of leftism in America. So you know, this was like 
you would think this was a departure, but it's not seen that way in America. It's just seen as part of his oeuvre, for want of a better word. This is what he did, and he found things in that book to talk about. You know, it's funny when, when you'd set your list through, and as you say, the book David Moranis, when Christ Still Mattered, The Life of Vince Lombardi. And you know, sometimes you hear, you're thinking, I know that name, Vince Lombardi. I'm thinking, where yeah. have I heard that name before? And it was only, you know, when I, when I did a wee check of him, as you say, he was the head coach of the Green Bay Packers American football team who won the first two of the modern era Super Bowls, I think, in 66 and 67 when they, they united the different leagues. And as you say, the, the Super Bowl trophy, which is where I heard the name, is named after him. I suppose it goes back to what we've been talking about, a fascinating figure. You don't have to be, I am quite fascinated by American football. I don't watch a lot of it, but when I do, you know, I'm not quite sure what it is I'm watching, but I'm completely captivated, whatever it is. Yeah, because it's quite a primal sport as well in that it's got this, this great physicality and speed and strength and contact. There's also a real depth of thought behind it. It's a very structured game. It's a game where plays, I mean, it's a game where quarterbacks don't just need to have athletic energy. They need to have the ability to process information, to call plays, to decide that. So it's a hugely interesting thing. And I always think that coaching in, in America is so central to American life. If you talk to Ameri- any American, you know, whether a politician, musician, whatever, they'll remember a coach at school. You know, it's like, I mean, I keep going back to this Lou Reed theory that I've got. You know, like Coney Island Baby has got this refrain that I want to play football for the coach. And you'd always think that Lou Reed would be the most unlikely of athletic people in school, but he wasn't. This great trope in America of sport and playing for the coach is really, really strong. I mean, if you went to George Bush, uh, either of them said, who was your coach at high school? They would be able to tell you and they'd be able to tell you about him and, and what they had. And Lombardi is hugely interesting for that because he had this great thing of the instilled discipline, even fear. But most importantly, he instilled respect. His players loved him and respected him. And But the book is about the cost of that great obsession that Lombardi had, not only in his life because he had great psychosomatic pains and you know, real illnesses because of what, but his wife too suffered. I mean, she was, she was a drinker and you always wonder how, you know, how much his single-mindedness combined with that. And the book is full of really old-time religion because, you know, Lombardi was a seminarian and you always wonder whether that great passion for religion and, and God and all that great spirituality sort of transcends onto the training pitch as well. It's just a brilliant story. Again, like, you don't need to know anything about American football. This is about people, this is about characters, about culture, about motivations, about obsessions and where you can lead them, you know. It's just a terrific book. Two things that always fascinate me about American football, one in relation to our football, the real football. Mm. Whenever you watch American football, they always have the coach, or coaches with the headphones on along the touchline and they are right down there in the heart of it, the way our coaches would be, mm. sidelines. But they always have different coaches up in the gods overlooking and seeing how each play develops. It's yeah. always puzzled me why we don't do that in football because we... I do the commentary for Celtic TV and we're up in the gantry mm. and overlooking Celtic Park and you can see the play and it gives you a totally different perspective of how teams are lining up, who's doing what, where. It's, mm. it's always been curious to me why our, our game has never really adopted that. It's slowly seeping in though. Quite a lot of comms are on the bench now in big teams. You've got guys, comms guys on the bench 
slowly coming in where they're getting stuff from not only just like team shapes and all, but they're getting analytical stuff because guys are processing the analytics and they're saying you know our number 10 is only you know he's only he's only gone 2000 meters in the first time, what's he up to? So that the coach, when he can go in at half time, can say, well, what are you doing here? You're not working. You know, there's actually analytics to say that you're just not working. There's also things about heat maps, which the guys have got in their all into. And I think that's the next huge step for football, is to buy in totally into that. Because a coach will take, you know, like a coach like Belichick and New England Patriots, who's a complete and utter dictator, he'll take certainly advice and information. He'll have his own what they call offence coach up there and when they've got the ball he'll ask his offence coach first right how do you see it? what play do you want to call uh, now whether Belichick takes it and relays that to the quarterback is a different matter altogether but there's very very close cooperation there and just the other thing I always think in American football as well it's very in terms of the sport and the spectators it's, again it's very reflective of modern America that it's a sport that I always identify in terms of the spectators is very much and it's a sweeping generalisation, I know, but with that kind of make America great, Trump support, there's a, there's a big element of that. And then obviously it's very political in terms of a lot of the American players taking the knee, as it were, to protest against yeah. police brutality in America as well. I mean, that's one of the great heroes of our time is Colin Kaepernick. I mean, yeah. you know, if you want to read about a real true sporting hero, read about him. He was, he's sacrificed his career and the altar of decency and the altar of, of dignity, you know, just uh, by saying, up with this, he shall not put. And his treatment by the AFL has been absolutely disgraceful. And, you know, he's, uh, for people who don't know it, he's, he's what they call a free agent. So he's basically unemployed. So any team can pick him up at any time. Uh, and nobody has picked him up. And the reason is not because of his abilities, which can be measured and, you know, yards gained and completed passes, etc. It's because of the American football franchise's fear from both their fans and their sponsors as well. Well, that's the halftime whistle gone. So Hugh and I are off for a well-earned pie in Bovril. Join us soon for part two of this Read All About It Extra podcast and sports books, where we chat about golf, the beautiful game, the not-so-beautiful game, some more boxing, and the competitive world of crazy golf.